cutting-edge conversations with the Quant community. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new Risk Quantcast. Tom Osborne, our Risk Management Editor, and I, Mauro Cesar, have the pleasure today to speak to uh, René Carmona. Hi, René. How are you today? Hi. Uh, very well. The weather may not be uh, very nice here, but um, I'm in a comfortable office, so I can hear you and happy to talk to you. Excellent. Thank you for joining us and welcome. Um, just to introduce you briefly to those who don't know you already, um, you are the a professor of final en of engineering uh, at uh, Princeton University and the director of the Master in Finance at Benheim Center for, for Finance at Princeton. Um, the Masters in Finance program you lead has gained the top spot in the RISC.net first ranking of Quant Finance uh, Masters programs worldwide. Well done and congratulations for that. Thank you so much. We're very happy with that. So the guide is online uh, on our website, RISC.net, and it is free to view, so anybody can access it and consult it. Um, we would like to start our questions from there. Um, what are, in your, view, in your view, the key drivers for a master's in finance to succeed? Well, I believe that there are uh, many different factors um, involved in the success of our program. Uh, one of them, uh, I believe, is the size of the program. Uh, the program is very small. Uh, the intake of students is um, in the range of 25 every year. Uh, and the program is run, I could say, family style. In other words, uh, all the students know the faculty, and the faculty uh, involved in the program know the student. And uh, what is uh, uh, very specific to Princeton is that uh, uh, the most senior faculty uh, and the most uh, prestigious faculty, let's exclude me for the purpose of this uh, conversation, are involved in teaching and in interacting with the students. In other words, uh, we do not uh, give away uh, uh, the courses, especially the core courses of the program to uh, visitors, adjunct. Um, that happens from time to time when a professor has to take a sabbatical and we cannot on the spot replace uh, the professor, but it is very rare. Uh, student can be guaranteed that, uh, you know, they will uh, uh, face, they will learn from, and they will interact uh, uh, the senior faculty uh, involved in the program. So I think this is a characteristic of the program, uh, which is uh, common throughout Princeton. Now, you know, the, the, the admission process is, is extremely competitive uh, and, and, you know, that may discourage uh, some of the potential applicants to indeed apply. Uh, but uh, once the students are in, everything, everything is done locally to make sure that the students are successful. In other words, they are successful in the courses they're taking, they're successful in the search for uh, internship, and they're successful in the search for um, a permanent job. And you know, that would be easy. Um, okay, so you, you're in, let's, uh, you know, not be selective in terms of courses. The courses are difficult, the grades, there is no grade inflation, uh, and, and students have to work and work very hard. But if students are, for whatever reason, in difficulty, we try to help them. 
uh, we find them tutors, we uh, uh, come more often uh, to visit them and help them uh, uh, through the precept uh, accompanying the classes. So uh, we tell the student, I tell the student all of the time, you know, if you fail, we fail. So we do not want you to fail. So there is a sense of uh, um, teamwork uh, when it comes to um, going through the courses and, uh, and, and learning material and, and, and taking the, the exams. Um, I think this is uh, one of the um, uh, reasons for the success of the program, but also what is extremely important is the involvement of, of the alumni. Um, you know, the alumni of Princeton are extremely uh, powerful. They're devoted to this uh, institution. They spend a lot of time and a lot of money uh, on the institution, even years after having left uh, the, the institution. And we um, uh, take full advantage of, of their presence and their desire uh, to help. Uh, for example, when we go through the admission process, um, you know, academics, including me, look at all the files. Uh, but then, you know, we have uh, uh, an interview process and then a second round of interview with alumni from the programs. When we get to a short list of uh, a student we want to admit, um, alumni of the university, so uh, generally all the people much more successful uh, in the industry, mostly in the financial industry, are getting in touch uh, with the student we offer admission, and they, in a sense, offer uh, their mentorship uh, to, to, to the students. So um, that helps us uh, have a very high yield in terms of the proportion of students uh, accepting our, our offer uh, as opposed to going to MIT or Berkeley. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that um, gives the uh, admitted student a clear view of what they're going to have to expect while in the program and, and afterwards. You paint this picture, Rene, of incremental change um, in, in terms of keeping up with the demands of industry, and that's clearly something that's that's never finished. But taking a step back, you've been there 30 years um, from you know the earliest days of quant finance as a recognised discipline in its own right, right through the high watermark of the profession. Um, uh, until the advent of the financial crisis. What's what's the biggest change um, in that time um, in terms of teaching, in terms of course structure? Have you had to pick sort of one thing? I believe that obviously, you know, the, the crisis uh, made a dramatic change and mostly because of the fear that the student may not uh, find job or find the same job. Uh, by the way, you know, the the, the placement record is uh, is uh, uh, absolutely perfect, and even during uh, the year following the crisis, we managed to place uh, all of our students. I believe that because uh, the, the the core faculty of the center, you know, this program is not in a department. Uh, this program is um, uh, within a center in which you have faculty from the Department of Economics, from mathematics, from, uh, from engineering, from operation research, from computer science. And some of these faculty are a little bit uh, casual, but the core set of faculty is very involved with the program. And we have experience uh, uh, in the industry through advising tasks or consulting. 
and some of the changes in the industry we saw them coming uh, and and we worked uh, you know to include in our courses uh, some of these uh, problems um, you know when um, the first uh, uh, worries about risk about measure of risk uh, occur in the industry uh, you know we started teaching heavy tail distribution, uh, various form of dependencies, and, and copula, even even before uh, the credit markets took off and uh, the copula became so um, uh, central uh, in this market. Um, what, what, what drove you to do that? What was the prompt? The very precise technical problem? Uh, not the problem in its own right, but what drove you to, well, how did you identify there was a problem to begin with, and then how did you collectively um, with all the other faculties that, that feed into the center come up with the solution that you did? Uh, and, and as I said, you know, several of us were involved on, in various form uh, with the industry. Um, and so we could see um, not only through the feedback from the student, uh, our PhD student going to the industry, but uh, through our personal involvement, uh, we could see uh, some of the needs. You know, when JP Morgan um, spin off um, a small company trying to um, compute uh, the VAR of large portfolio, uh, you know, and they were basically using Copula without um, naming it, uh, you know, we realized that and we include that in a course, uh, you know, the heavy tail distribution, which means that, you know, the standard correlations cannot be applied, cannot be useful. It's actually very misleading. And this is uh, one way to um, uh, introduce dependencies between the uh, individual element of your portfolio. And so you can compute uh, uh, the var. So, so that's a very simple example. But, you know, this is um, uh, what, uh, what we have been doing uh, constantly. You know, when the credit market uh, started uh, um, banks started uh, opening credit desk and when they started uh, uh, trading CDOs in masses, you know, we um, uh, had courses on, uh, on, on credit. I mean, actually, to be honest with you, this course is not taught anymore, but, you know, we made sure that at that time uh, we had the, the courses. And of course, we were doing the theory at Princeton. You know, we're not trying to be a, uh, a training uh, ground for uh, employers, uh, you know, Princeton is trying to, to, to educate. This is a liberal art college, and we try to educate people. But, you know, the mathematics each time are new or cutting edge, and we can still uh, bring them to the level of the students so they understand how they relate to the, the needs of the application in the industry. And, and so, as I said, uh, you know, when uh, you realize that the size of the data and that you know, an Excel spreadsheet may not uh, be enough when you realize that anything that goes to production uh, after, you know, quants and uh, traders have done some research had to go in uh, C++, we decided to have a course. Actually, I personally created it, and I had uh, <laughs> Bjorn Strauss-Troop uh, coming and lecturing my class. Uh, so, so um, you know, these are, you know, steps that uh, we take constantly. So the the program is not... Um, it's evolving constantly. So one common issue for uh, all uh, Master in Finance programs is that of uh, bridging the gap between academia and the industry. How do you strike a balance between giving a solid theoretical background uh, and giving a practical, practical insights into financial markets? 
Well, uh, I do not see uh, the real issue here because, you know, you can present uh, uh, the theory and you can involve the student uh, in a project, in um, uh, exams, in homework where uh, the data uh, is coming from a very specific problem uh, from the financial industry. And, 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 you know, you can have a course where you present highly theoretical material, but of course, you know, you can make sure that the student know why you introduce this material in this course and make sure that the students see how uh, these concepts are used and brought down to the level of the data. And, and so uh, this may be quite difficult uh, for some uh, type of, uh, of concept, but, you know, in general, that is not too much of a problem. Um, you know, when, um, uh, when it comes to uh, regression, when it comes to a subject that presumably uh, you'll bring up a little bit later, you know, machine learning, uh, it is uh, difficult uh, to find um, standard, let's see, pricing uh, application for which these methods can be used. But you can try. Uh, and you can um, um, uh, explain uh, the, the relevance or the potential and point to the possible future of uh, some uh, new development in the area, new changes to the tool that you present, uh, which will be um, useful uh, for some of the problems for which they may not be. Um, um, I mean, years and years ago, for example, uh, when I uh, wanted to teach time series and I thought, you know, student uh, going to the financial industry had to know time series. Well, they don't have enough time to go beyond uh, in a particular class, the classical linear model or the regressive moving average. It is impossible to find reasonable uh, application uh, showing the interest and the efficiency of, of these models. You know, you have to go to stochastic volatility, arch gauge model. Well, what I found was that maybe we should price temperature option. It's a very niche market. It's not central to the financial industry. But, you know, we have to follow the temperature and we have to model the temperature. And for that, autoregressive models are very satisfactory. So, you know, if, if you make the effort, you may be able to uh, you know, bring whatever concept you think is relevant that the student have to learn, have to know, uh, you know, the tool that they have to have in their toolbox, you may be able to find an application in finance uh, uh, for which uh, uh, these uh, tools can be brought to bear. And yet, obviously, there's a need to balance um, teaching of, of high theory with practical concepts too. You yourself, uh, when commenting on the predominance of, of US courses um, in RISOTNET's rankings, you, you uh, cited the example of Europeans perhaps in, in some instances getting that balance wrong, training too many uh, Q-quants, as you put it, when folk are um, looking for P-quants in the industry now. Um, do, you, do you think that um, that's something that, that European courses need to change uh, if they want to compete? I believe so. Uh, 
I believe so. Now, you know, I do not want to sound like um, uh, being too critical of the European system. In a sense, I'm a product of the European system and the, and the highly uh, um, mathematical and theoretical training of, um, of students. I still have, it's just almost a, uh, as a joke now, but on, on, on my shelves in one of my offices, I have uh, the entire series of the Bourbaki books. Um, now, um, you know, it is important to uh, understand uh, pricing. It is important to understand how the the revolution of the the, the 70s and you know the Black Shore formula and everything that followed uh, has brought uh, to to the market. But it is also uh, uh, important to understand that you know in these days and age, um, one need to uh, be open to to other uh, strategy. Pricing has changed dramatically. Um, doesn't mean that, uh, you know, the Q measure, the Martingale measure is completely irrelevant and, and, and not useful. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that, you know, there are alternatives which are required. There are, you know, when you, when you, when you calibrate a model, you calibrate a model to the particular abstract model, to the particular, um, you know, set of parameters from your Q measures, and then you use these parameters to price a, a new product. Well, uh, how about trying to uh, go directly from uh, the data uh, to, to, to the prices, to the decision you want to make without having this um, detour uh, to, through the, uh, the, the, the model that um, uh, you believe in or someone forced on you? Um, now, I don't mean that models are useless. Believe me, if you look at the, the books and the writing that I wrote, they're extremely theoretical. Uh, but you know, you have to be able to prepare students uh, to both uh, perspective, to both uh, implementation, and, and to be able to critically um, uh, uh, examine uh, the, the consequences of both of them. You know, while I was teaching uh, statistics to, uh, uh, to, to students, uh, I had this motto that I was repeating over and over and over, you know, one should not practiced statistics without a license. And what I meant is that, you know, you have to have a critical attitude toward any result that a model, an algorithm, a program you took off the shelves uh, give. You have to have common sense uh, to look at the result and try to understand what they mean and, and, and how trustfully they are. And that's, that's something that, uh, you know, if you rush through a program, you may not um, uh, do that because, you know, you want to learn as many uh, technical tools as possible. You want to learn how to use as many technical tools as possible. And, and, and then you think that the world is yours. Uh, so, you know, we have to um, look at all the tools that you're using. They're extremely powerful, but they are dangerous if we do not know what they're doing. Yeah, no, I remember a front office quant saying precisely that uh, at a bank uh, last year we, when we ran the survey previously. Uh, he, he asked everybody who came in for a grad interview what a martingale was, and a few knew, well, most knew. Um, I think uh, very few, one or two, if any, could give an example of where it should be used. You know, 
uh, again, I think these models are extremely uh, important, are extremely useful, and we have to know what they are. Uh, but we have to understand uh, their limitation, especially in the way you know we're using them. Sometimes we force models, and we force this Q measure uh, in places where it's very difficult uh, to 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 stuff it, and and so. Um, you know, we have to think of uh, of alternative, and I think more and more because of the huge amount of data that uh, banks are accumulating, and banks and, and institutions are accumulating. Uh, uh, there are times where um, you know there is more room for a P quant than a than a Q quant. But I think ideally uh, people should be able to uh, change the hat and be uh, behaving like a Q quant or a P quant also. Um, and changing several times during the day, but but uh, I, I think you know this uh, um, training uh, of student uh, in one single way, you know, I think um, could have an extremely negative effect. Is your view on uh, teaching under the Q measure and the P measure, let's call it that way, um, somehow? Uh, conditioned by the fact that, uh, as I understand, uh, the Master in Finance at Princeton is more oriented at uh, the buy side of the industry. So you have a lot of courses on uh, uh, asset management uh, uh, and risk management from the, for the buy side, uh, as well as corporate finance, for example, which is um, somewhat unusual, I think, for uh, Master in Quant Finance. Well, uh, you know, we have uh, several courses in uh, corporate finance, uh, one by uh, an alumni from the industry who uh, comes every single year to teach the course. Uh, we had uh, uh, courses in uh, behavioral finance. Uh, so, uh, as I said, you know, we have a strong group of economists, group of mathematicians, uh, engineer, you know, doing uh, uh, statistics, uh, optimization, operation research, uh, all uh, interested in finance. But we also teach, um, you know, uh, uh, asset pricing, and we have two courses on that, one of them uh, relying on uh, stochastic calculus, but we also have, uh, you know, a very popular course on fixed income. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, we have... Uh, uh, specialty course like uh, uh, commodity high frequency, which is of course uh, extremely popular now, and all these courses in uh, data analysis and machine learning. So I think uh, there is um, uh, a balance uh, because the the menu from which the student uh, pick their elective courses is is very broad. So. Uh, I do not think that uh, we are, or I, I'm not aware of the fact that we are um, heavy uh, on the P or the Q uh, side. I think, uh, you know, a student pick and choose what they want, and very often, you know, they complement uh, the original background uh, with the uh, courses. So, so as I said, you know, as a, as a matter of quality control, we want to have them go through five core courses, and it's it's very difficult for them uh, to to avoid taking these courses. And corporate finance is one of them. Uh, and after that, uh, you know, it, I, I meet with them, and uh, uh, we uh, try to find a curriculum fitting their need. We, we tailor the curriculum fitting their need, uh, what their plans are 
what their dreams are, and you know, we try to help them um, achieve that. Um, but but we're not uh, heavy on one or the other. I do not believe so. You seem to have ended up with this uh, rich network of alumni who who now work for hedge funds, but are willing to to give up their time to to come back and teach. Yes, um, this is um, uh, as I said. You know, one one of uh, the the strength. We do not have many courses taught by uh, non-faculty, but uh, we uh, we have a few, um, two per year, uh, and and. Uh, even though the program is relatively young, uh, you know, we have uh, um, alums from the program who are now running hedge fund. We're doing uh, very well. And, you know, now they're doing so well, they may not have as much time to come, but they came for several years uh, to teach a course. Um, and and um, I think this is extremely good for the student to see, uh, you know, where they could be five, 10 years, 15 years down the road. Can you give us a, a couple of names? <laughs> uh, so we had for uh, several years, uh, Dario Volani, for example, who was uh, in the first class. The first year, it was extremely difficult for him to get uh, a job. That was, I think, in 2001 or 2002. Uh, and he started uh, as a weather trader, and then he started <laughs> trading gas, and then he moved to uh, JP Morgan very quickly on proprietary trading. At that time, they had a very uh, big proprietary trading desk. I think he made MD in a record amount of time. Um, I don't remember, three years or something like this. Uh, and then he worked um, uh, for special, several firms. And, uh, you know, he started his own uh, fund, uh, I think, last year. And they seem doing pretty, pretty well. So he came regularly every other year's uh, every other year to to teach a course, I'm not sure that um, he will be able to do that uh, next year. But this is one one example of um, graduating from this program, uh, who has been successful and in, uh, involved with the program. Mm. Uh, related to um, well, to what you anticipated earlier, and related to uh, indeed what Villani does in his uh, uh, newly launched hedge fund, I uh, wanted to ask you something about machine learning and uh, the teaching of it. So I suppose, well, you have courses uh, on machine learning and programming. Uh, do you see that? Do you see machine learning as a, a long-lasting trend, as a tool that quant will need for a long time, if not forever now in finance? Or is it a trend that will, in your view, tend to, tr to fade? This is a very tricky question, as you know. Uh, I believe uh, that, that there is uh, a bright future for um, what we call machine learnings. You know, traditional statistician will tell you that this is you know, simply compute, uh, computing implementations of some old statistical ideas, uh, which I do not believe. But um, uh, it is clear that many successful hedge funds have been using AI and machine learning for years and very successfully. Um, and, and I was personally uh, involved, so I know. So that's, 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 that's a fact. Um, now, you know, machine learning had tremendous success um, and, and the industry wants to leverage uh, these tools. However, at this stage, uh, you know, 
it is not clear how to use it. And, and, and there are, and, and I want to make a few points later on, uh, there are a lot of obstacles uh, to picking a program from the shelves and, uh, and uh, implementing it on financial data. Uh, still, you know, major bank, major institution uh, use uh, machine learning for uh, application, which are a little bit marginal, but uh, they use it for uh, image analysis to, uh, from satellite uh, uh, imagery to track uh, uh, tankers, trucks to uh, track the weather. So this is mostly um, uh, in commodity. Um, they use it, uh, you know, to try to guess the, uh, the sentiment uh, of the market. So they use text analysis. Uh, so they use existing successful tool for machine learning uh, for that. Um, I believe that they could use it in many um, uh, other instances uh, in which I do not know that they use it. You know, there are, for example, disclose uh, FX market where uh, the market maker can see uh, and, 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 and know the identity of its uh, uh, clients. And so profiling these clients would be something very easy and very easily done uh, with uh, machine learning tools. Um, however, uh, you know, the, the naive uh, dream is to use that for, for, for trading. And that's where I, I think um, uh, the uh, problems come, um, you know, and I see two two major issues for that. Uh, first, you know, machine learning algorithm are black boxes. You know, even you know, at very early stages, there were already black boxes, and um, the industry uh, is not willing uh, to go for that. There are many applications. You know, when uh, a machine learning algorithm is in your phone, you don't care to understand no. Uh, how uh, the the algorithm came to its conclusion when it proposes a spelling of a word, but uh, uh, you know when when an algorithm proposes a trade and when the trade is uh, uh, pretty big, uh, you know you may uh, want to know uh, what happened, and so uh, you know you may see that as a shortcoming. You know I may want to see it as a, as an opportunity. In other words, there is an opportunity for research to to develop a machine learning algorithm. Uh, which would be transparent. In other words, uh, we would not have to open the box to understand what is um, uh, going on. So they will have to be uh, streamlined. They may not be as complex. They may not use as much data. But but I think uh, you know there is um, uh, uh, an enormous opportunity for for academic and practitioner alike to 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 get involved uh, into uh, research, where by you know we will. Uh, finally, uh, open uh, uh, these um, uh, these black boxes. Okay. Uh, in in a sense, you know what we are doing now is that we run uh, these algorithm, uh, we get an output, um, we panic, we trust it, uh, and we feel that we need some sort of forensic analysis to to go back and uh, and undo or understand how the algorithm came to this conclusion. So it is. Uh, definitely unsettling. An, an, an and and, and the, the, the second uh, shortcoming that I see is that, you know, machine learning algorithms have been extremely successful because of, of the availability of large amount of data. And, and, you know, we collect more data and more data, and I know that many banks are collecting a lot of data, but uh, in the financial arena, especially uh, when it comes to pricing, uh, 
more historical data doesn't necessarily lead to better predictions. That's a major problem, which is not present when you try to uh, teach uh, an algorithm to recognize faces or to recognize a cat from a dog or to um, accomplish some of the tasks for which uh, these algorithms have shown to be extremely successful. In the financial industry, uh, the problem is different. The data over time is not always stationary. And so you may not want to use uh, too old uh, a set of uh, data uh, because this data is stale and it's not going to be uh, helpful to predict what is happening in the future. So, so machine learning has a lot of application um, and, 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 and it will uh, be used in many different ways. In terms of you know, pricing, if you think of this numerical price data and trying to foresee the future from uh, past data, I think uh, a lot needs to be done. And, and I believe this is an opportunity uh, more than, uh, uh, than, uh, than a kiss of death. Uh, uh, you know, we have to uh, understand how algorithm can be de developed and trained with less data less historical data, uh, and, and, and that's, I think, uh, uh, something that uh, is not um, uh, uh, available uh, uh, on the shelves at this time. But, but if, you, if you think about it, you know, the, the early days of um, uh, the neural networks, let's say 40 years ago, um, you know, the first neural network, of course, you know, we didn't have enough data, we didn't have enough uh, uh, a powerful computer, but you know the, the the structure the theory was there uh but these um uh mlps you know didn't work very well for a certain number of applications for example for image analysis they were not working very well and people were still relying on you know fourier method wavelet methods uh, all sorts of methods but uh you know enough research was made and you know we included uh the elements of wavelet analysis this multi-scale um, uh, approach uh, to analyzing uh, images, we introduced that into uh, the structure of the neural network and, you know, convolution neural network came up and they are extremely successful. They are basically the standard for image analysis. Well, um, that was not enough, you know, when you try to use, even with the convolution network, you try to uh, analyze text, translate um, uh, from one language to, to another, uh, there is some sort of time series structure which is not um, captured properly by the existing structure. So, you know, people invented the recurrent neural network and problem solved. So for the needs of the financial industry, the existing tool may not be appropriate uh, at this stage, but, but I don't see that as a as, as the end of the story. I believe that there are enough smart people, there are enough uh, money uh, poured into the development of new algorithm, new computer structure, that uh, something uh, will come up. Uh, and, and, uh, and I think this is uh, exciting. And where banks are concerned, of course, uh, it's not just a case of money being at stake when um, you know an algo is telling you to make a certain trade. If a bank is making a credit decision about uh, a customer um, based on um, signals from uh, gain from an algo that makes use of 
um, neural networking techniques, the regulator will want to know that they're confident that uh, the output was reached fairly and, and transparently, and, and also that they can demonstrate it. It's robust and predictable, which is which is pretty difficult with with that family of approaches. Yeah, it is. Uh, at this stage, it is not possible. As I said, you know, we have to open these black boxes, and and they're huge. They're enormous. We cannot track, uh, you know, the 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 steps taken by the algorithm to to eventually spit out the output, uh, and and that's that's. Uh, but I think that uh, uh, a source of uh, of uh, research. That's a, I think a very interesting problem. Absolutely, pivoting uh, 180 degrees. Um, as a Brit, uh, I'm, I'm not going to get away without mentioning the B word, uh, Brexit, in this uh, in this hour long podcast. Um, an awful lot of the UK uh, courses and uh, course directors we've spoken to in the course of putting together with uh, putting together the guide are worried about uh, the impact on um, of Brexit on their um, appeal to. Uh, continental European students, um, you know, fees will inevitably rise. Uh, faculty um, may not feel much like staying in the UK um, under the, the present administration, um, uh, and also um, that uh, that will have the impact possibly of making UK courses still more reliant on on overseas students. Do you, do you anticipate any um, any knock on impacts for for US courses? By contrast, will U.S. courses suddenly look more attractive or relatively less expensive, perhaps, than they, they have done in the past to, to European students, for instance? I am not sure that I uh, have a clear answer uh, to this question. And uh, Brexit is not the only uh, unknown here. You know, we have uh, uh, in the U.S. Um, a lot of clouds over uh, immigration and, and visas and student visas and uh, um, uh, charges which could be added uh, to um, uh, uh, student funding and you know making for example student funding uh, taxable all sorts of uh, issues that uh, we are worrying and and we still do not know if this has already impacted um, uh, uh, the number of applicants we have and uh, will that impact uh, uh, these applications in the future. Uh, in terms of, uh, of Brexit, you know, I am I am not. I mean, I'm trying to uh, to 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 stay current on the issues. I am personally, I was in um, on on a board at uh, Oxford. I was on the board of the of the scientific board of the Mann Institute for for many years when it was created. Um, so so I have many colleagues uh, uh, and, and and friends um, uh, in England, uh, London, and 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 Oxford. They are worried about the uncertainty, but they do not think that um, uh, the programs themselves will be uh, affected uh, too much. But of course, you know, we 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 really do not know. We really do not know. So, Rene, in the last few minutes we have got at our disposal, I would like to move on from uh, uh, the teaching side of your academic life and uh, these political issues and uh, ask you about your current research. Uh, so, obviously, over the years you have published. Uh, hundreds of papers and uh, book chapters and uh, and books. Uh, why is it keeping busy? Uh, why is it keeping you busy at the moment? What are you doing research on? Okay, so m my last book, many colleagues 
find that absolutely insane. Uh, you know, I just published last year two volume of 700 pages each on the probabilistic theory of mean field games. What got me into this is that this was um, a theory invented simultaneously in France and in, uh, in Canada. Uh, and uh, I thought uh, that it was absolutely a uh, uh, wonderful way for mathematicians to get involved and try to understand uh, the behavior of large uh, crowds, large populations. So, uh, you know, you, you can think of uh, pedestrian, you can think of uh, uh, birds flocking in the in the sky over Oxford, or you can think of uh, uh, herds of traders uh, trying to get into congested trade. Uh, and so um, I, I, I got involved into uh, this um, uh, theory of mean field games. And I believe that there are uh, a huge, an enormous amount of uh, possible application. Uh, I believe that um, you know mathematicians have uh, neglected uh, game theory, even though you know uh, John Nash got a Nobel Prize, but he got a Nobel Prize in, in economics before uh, being recognized by mathematician. And uh, game theory has been basically handed over to to economists who teach it, but um, very few math department and even you know uh, operation research department uh, uh, teach it. Uh, and so. Uh, there are a lot of very uh, interesting uh, potential application, even uh, in the financial industry, uh, of things that are not um, understood. For example, uh, you know, auctions uh, and uh, pricing uh, digital goods. You know, when you click on uh, on on some web page, you know, these are a lot of people clicking at the same time, almost simultaneously, and and um, uh, how do you price uh, these things? Uh, IPOs, you know, how do you price IPOs? And so um, these uh, problems uh, could be modeled uh, by uh, a, an understanding of the interaction between a large number of people where, as they say, you know, in, when you talk about an IPO, you have several stages where uh, uh, different type of customers are considered and proposed uh, uh, something, and then uh, uh, a price will eventually uh, come out of uh, these uh, processes. But uh, uh, many, uh, many IPOs have been uh, very unsuccessful, or at least have missed the target. So even in the financial industry, understanding these uh, types of uh, Auctions, you know, let's, these are auctions. I think um, uh, uh, it's interesting, and of course, you see that in uh, in, in different area of, um, of of the financial industry. For example, in high frequency trading, you know, the the large number of um, players uh, involved uh, in one day uh, trading is uh, something that is very difficult uh, to model, and you have to take aggregate quantity to, to model them and to understand <clears throat> what the impact it has on, uh, on the order book, uh, on, on, on liquidity, as I mentioned before, um, uh, congested trade and, and how people uh, can get out of some of, of the trades. Um, so predatory trading, herding, uh, congestion, I think all these um, issues you know, could be amenable to some of this model that I'm uh, playing with purely from a theoretical point of view. But, but uh, you know, when you have 
uh, application in mind, you can always uh, step down from uh, the high level of, of abstraction and try to run uh, simple models uh, and, 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 and compute uh, uh, what uh, the situation is when you have a small population of computer owners and a hacker uh, attacking them. Uh, when you have uh, uh, you know, a current problem with vaccination and uh, uh, the uh, uh, campaign, uh, the bots, uh, you know, trying to influence public opinion on, on vaccination. These are typical um, uh, mean field models uh, because uh, what you care about is not if John Doe vaccinated his kid or Walter Smith did the same thing, but what is the proportion of, you know, uh, neighbors who vaccinated their children. Uh, this is the basis on which I'm going to make my decision whether or not I want to vaccinate my uh, my kid, and and so you could, as I said, you know, find a lot of uh, uh, problems in the financial industry where a uh, large number of uh, interacting individual um, create what chaos or uh, an equilibrium, a stable equilibrium, robust or um, uh, unstable. So so these are phenomena. Uh, which I am uh, have been uh, interested lately. So, uh, in a sense, I took a little bit of a of a distance from prices and trying to understand more uh, behavior, the behavior of, uh, of of people, and and the result of uh, the behavior of large uh, crowds of uh, of individual interacting, interacting, of course, in a certain way. You have to 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 model that. So I think this is what has been uh, keeping me uh, uh, busy. Uh, because you know, uh, I, I, I got involved in this. I found this idea absolutely uh, amazing, and I've been giving courses over the last four or five years uh, uh, all over the places, including uh, in Oxford, in London, at Imperial, uh, and, 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 and again, you know, I, I wrote two books of uh, 1,400 page total, um, absolutely unreadable, I'm sure, but uh, <laughs> but I had it to, to do it. It does sound a very innovative stream of research. So, well, best of luck in that. We'll keep an eye on uh, on the developments. Uh, Rene, these were all the questions we wanted to ask you today. Thank you very much for the time you dedicated to us. So thank you again, and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs> <laughs>